Welcome to the Brockcorp Report. I'm Michael Brockcorp. I'm your host, along with... Becky Allery. And this week is kind of special. We don't have our host, we don't, we don't have our moderator, Todd Walker, with us this week. Todd is traveling the world, and so we are doing our first episode of the Broadcorp Report without Todd here. And so I'm going to do my best to keep Michael in line myself. And this is interesting. We were both doing a little bit of prep before, and we realized how much we missed Todd already. So, Todd, if you listen to this, please recognize that we miss you. We look forward to having you back. And if uh, you don't listen to this, you're fired. Yes, exactly. You are fired if you don't. One of the subjects or one of the areas that we wanted to talk about this podcast episode was about why the DFL keeps winning in Minnesota. Uh, Becky and I both come from a political background, partisan background, Republican background. Some of us at the table are more Republican than others. Guilty. Uh, uh, and I think that's a reference also to me being guilty. Uh, but we wanted to spend a little time on this episode talking post-election but why the DFL keeps continuing to win in this state. Uh, they have won. They have not lost a statewide election since 2006. They've won every race statewide since then. The last time a Republican won was in 2006. That was Tim Pawlenty for governor. And so we're going to go through this episode of the Broadcore Report will be kind of a discussion about those issues. And uh, we're going to start with the endorsement process. Becky, why don't you start off with the endorsement process? Yeah, you know, I think like many Republicans, I have a, a love-hate relationship with the endorsement process. I think for the last couple of cycles, many Republican um, activist operatives have, uh, you know, maybe tried to do away or hoped we would do away with the endorsement process. Um, on the love side, I think it's a game that you can win. You know, it's a strategy uh, kind of pushing and pulling pieces. Um, I've you know, been um, been a part of a number of different successful endorsement process or endorsements with candidates um, that I'm very proud of and, and worked very hard for. Um, but on the negative side, you know, it's not it, it's just simply not an inclusive process. We for on the Republican side to to be a part of endorsing a statewide candidate, you have to go to caucus in February, then you have to go to a BPOU convention in March or April, and then the state convention, which is typically a two day out of town hotel required. Um, event. It takes time, it takes money, it takes, uh, you know, energy away from your family, your work and, and other obligations. And so um, it's it's certainly not an inclusive situation. And I think that that um, leads to, to some of the problems we have with a, a select few 2000 folks um, being responsible for choosing our statewide candidates. How do you think the Republican endorsement process matches up with the DFL? You know, the DFL, um, I, I believe it was I, I, Governor Walls was one. He was not endorsed. They, the DFL endorsed Aaron Murphy in 2018. Um, Walls obviously was successful in the primary and eventually in the general election. Um, Keith Ellison was not endorsed. He got in the race after the endorsement, was still success, successful. I also believe, I don't believe uh, Mark Dayton was endorsed by, um, by the delegation back when he was elected. So um, on the Republican side, we have yet for, at least in my um, in my time here in Republican politics, we have yet to have a time where a non-endorsed candidate at a statewide level has been successful over the endorsed candidate. One of the things I think is different about the endorsement process on the DFL side versus the Republican is the Republican, the DFL party is a coalition-based party. They are, a, they are a formation of the Democratic and Farmer Labor Party in the state. They do a much better job of working in coalitions. And so over the last you know 20-some years, there have been multiple examples of where the DFL has endorsed a candidate for statewide office and they have not made it through the primary. What the DFL does a very good job of is rallying 
on primary night for whoever their statewide candidate is. That's one of their organizational organizational benefits. They have hotly contested endorsement contests, but they recognize that the primary is where the final candidates are. And so the Democrats do a very good job. You articulated a a very good list uh, of, of candidates that have won statewide in the general election, but have not been endorsed on the DFL side and have challenged the endorsement process. On the Republican side, it's just entirely different. They are, we are fanatics about the endorsement process. I think to, to, the, to the detriment of, the, of selecting candidates who are not good in the general election, which goes to our next, our next subject, which is candidate equality. What is your perspective on on candidate equality that we have on the Republican versus Democratic side? Yeah, you know, I think that this is really a a kind of chicken and egg situation. We don't get good candidates because we don't have a track record of winning and we can't win because we don't get good candidates. Um, You know, with the endorsement process, it kind of uh, forces a um, further right messaging and kind of alignment to get through the endorsement process. You know, our our delegates on the Republican side tend to be... um, further right than the primary Republicans, I would argue, would be. Um, so you have to be start further right. You have to kind of maybe moderate a little bit to get through the, the Republican primary and then even further for the general. And I think that also leads to um, a messaging situation where um, some messages that you that a candidate may put forth in the to get through the, elect, the endorsement process may come back to bite them when we come to the general. I mean, it just is a messy, messy situation. And, and all in all, I mean, as you said, we just don't have great candidates that have come out of the endorsement. One of the things that's important for listeners and others who are following this podcast to understand is, is some of the historical context of this. Governor Tim Walls was just reelected. He was elected with over 52% of the vote. The last time a Republican endorsed candidate for governor got fi- over 50% of the vote was in 19, I think it was 82, when Al Quie ran. And I will say that was before I was born. Yes. Um... And then the last time the Republican candidate for the United States Senate got more than 50% was uh, David Durenberger, I believe, in 88. And so it's been a long time since a Republican-endorsed candidate has won statewide. The last time was 2006. But the last time a Republican-endorsed candidate got over 50% of the vote was decades, decades, eons ago. I mean, I think this is also a problem with the endorsement process is the amount of money that candidates on the Republican side end up spending to simply become the the nominee out of that endorsement to to be get through May, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars are being spent to woo two thousand and some Republican activists. Um, that's that's not necessarily a good spend of money. Uh, we saw that with the Jensen Burke campaign. I think they spent a lot of money. Um, obviously, they were successful to get out, get out of the endorsement, um, but that is where their successes ended, unfortunately. Now, once we, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Nope. I'm glad. Well, that was you know, I'm glad we glad it, but it's a good point you've raised. I mean, it's about candidate quality, and the other point of the matter is, is that it is be, it does become a situation where it's going to be challenging for the Republicans because they haven't won statewide in so many years, decades in some instances on some of the races, to get quality candidates. I mean, there's a real correlation between that. I mean, how does the Republican Party of Minnesota post this election go out and market themselves to get candidates to run, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think if, if I had the answer to that, I don't, I think I'd be back working in Republican politics. I, I think that's a, a really good question that needs to be answered. I think one of the first things we need to do is um, make sure that we, we are hopefully our activists start to be a little bit like the DFL and kind of, you know, get on 
behind our eventual candidate, whoever that may be, um, that, you know, that hopefully is a strong candidate coming out of the primary. Um, you know, I, I worked on the Emmer for Governor campaign in 2010, and I'll still hear it, you know, with activists of, did you support Marty Seifert or did you support Tom Emmer? I mean, we're a party of grudges, and I think that's really kind of weakens the situation. So we need to get somebody who can raise money, who can be a, an effective on-message messenger, and somebody that can, you know, be successful coming out of the primary and eventual general election. Would you support the Republican Party getting rid of the endorsement process oh, or really? that or that allegiance to it? You know, really putting me on the spot there. Um, I I will, you know, you heard it here first. Yes, I do. And I will say this is, I, again, have been uh, a number of different um, endorsement battles. I was on the 2014 Mike McFadden campaign uh, endorsement team. Um, he was one who came in saying, you know, I'm not going to abide by the endorsement, but I do hope to earn it. And I will say, um, you know, love him or hate him. And, you know, he obviously was not eventually successful against Al Franken. He did bust his butt through that process. He did put in the work and came out successful of that endorsement process. And I would say probably one of the few that said, I, I'm not going to abide by it, that, that came out that way. Um, so, again, I, while I do feel like it is a game, it's a strategy kind of situation where, where if you are, you know, put the right plan in place, you can be successful. Um, it's obviously not working for us and something does need to change. Now, to also take a little bit of the heat off you, I'm the former deputy chair. I've supported the endorsement process without any hesitation. I think the process needs to be reformed. I think that there, it's clearly not working. And so the party needs to look at potentially some type of hybrid model. Um, where they are recognizing that we are, in essence, a two-party. We're, in essence, we have both a primary and an endorsing convention in this state. A lot of states have either an endorsing convention or they have a primary. We have both. And I think the party activists on the Republican side need to recognize that there is a contested primary. And, and it, we, the Republicans, may benefit from focusing more on the primary than just on an inter-party inter contest the endorsement process. I do want to say to maybe take a little heat off of any of these, my my fellow activists or former activists, I came up in the party system. I was a BPOU chair. I, you know, I, I do appreciate that system. I do think there are a lot of really good people that work within that system. Um, and, and so it's not a knock to the activists themselves, but just the situation that doesn't set us up for success. Once we get through the endorsement process, we have a candidate, then we get to primary and the outside groups. What's your perspective on the, the outside groups that exist on the Democratic side versus the Republican side? I mean, the outside groups on the Democrat side are just, you know, they, they have money, they have energy, they do put in the time to do the research on the front end. Um, I think that uh, Better Minnesota spent some $15 million against the Jensen Burke campaign this last cycle. Um, and largely, uh, you, you kind of depend on these outside groups to come in with the heavy, you know, hitting negative messaging. So a candidate can focus on the positive, focus on their plan, their proposals, their policies that they're going to enact if and when they're successful. Um, and, and the left was mightily successful at defining Scott Jensen in a way that he was just not able to come back from. The outside groups, I think, are one of the biggest reasons why, one of the, the biggest reasons why the DFL keeps winning. I mean, they have a very well-oiled machine. But the outside groups, particularly when, what, what the, the cadence that seems to happen here is Republicans endorse a candidate for statewide office. They come out of the convention and, and they fumble. They drop the ball. That happened this particular election cycle. Uh, Jensen and uh, Scott Jensen and Matt Burke were endorsed. They came out of the state convention. They didn't do a statewide tour. They were talking about aquifers, 
And what's waiting in the wing is Alliance for Better Minnesota, the most well-funded outside group on the DFL side to message against both Jensen and Burke. What they did then over the summer months leading up to the primer and then afterwards is they spent a tremendous amount of money focused on Jensen and Burke's record without any response on the Republican side. So what ended up happening then is by the time the Republicans started to engage, also when more Minnesotans started paying attention, the realization was that the race was over because ABM is so effective at messaging, particularly against candidates like Jensen and Burke, they were in a non-recoverable position. And that is a huge organizational effort. That's a huge benefit to the overall DFL organizational effort when you have an outside group coming in that is willing to spend the type of resources that they are targeting Republican candidates to the point where once the greater electorate starts to pay attention, they're in a non-recoverable position and they can't win. Now, to play devil's advocate a little bit and maybe even come to the Jensen campaign's defense. Oh, boy. Do you think that this is was purely a Jensen fault or maybe an overall Republican fault? Because I would argue that Republicans have messaged on overturning Roe versus Wade for, I mean, decades now, some 30, 40 years, right, since this was enacted. And then they did. And no solution, no plan, no, you know, real path forward across the country, I think, on Republicans of how to kind of message their way out of this was there. So I I don't know that the Jensen campaign was unique in their failures to respond to this um, kind of line of messaging coming from ABM. So I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here. Um, But do you kind of explain maybe what Jensen or Republicans could have done aside from having another 15 million to spend in response? Jensen had no rudder when it came to abortion. This is a guy who it came out during the endorsement, prior to the endorsement process that he previously worked while he was becoming a doctor at Planned Parenthood. He then decided to pick one, and he was being criticized. His conservative credentials were being criticized, particularly his pro-life credentials were being criticized by Republican activists. He then picked Matt Burke as his running mate, someone who I think was largely picked because Matt Burke has in the pro-life community impeccable credentials. He then got endorsed, campaigned on wanting to ban abortion, making sure it was abundantly clear this wasn't like out of context commentary. Scott Jensen campaigned on banning abortion, and he was he was boastful about what he was going to do if he got elected. Both he and Matt Burke were going to do once they got elected governor or lieutenant governor. Then we obviously had the Dobbs decision come out that fundamentally changed the landscape, and then Scott Jensen was playing catch up. This is what happens, obviously. It was a bit of a perfect storm, for, but for Jensen, but he contributed to that. Absolutely. He was a rudderless, he, on, on many issues, whether it was the Second Amendment or was abortion, Scott Jensen was a rudderless candidate. He had no core convictions, no set of values that were going to define and mobilize his campaign. And so where that becomes more of a problem is when you have an outside group that is able to capitalize on his messaging. There were Republican candidates, and I absolutely agree with your premise, Becky, that Republicans were not prepared for abortion to be the, the Dobbs decision. It was like the dog finally caught the car. They'd been talking about it, but they were not prepared for the right. political realities of it. And in Minnesota, we had a candidate where that played out in, I think, more of a dramatic way than other states because you didn't have the same type of messaging issues that you had in other states. There weren't a lot of candidates on the Republican side that were out there talking in kind of the same kind of rhetorical way that Jensen was in discussing it. They certainly weren't taking two sides of a three-sided or three sides of a two-sided issue like he was. And so I think when you have a candidate 
that is messaging in such a sloppy way, going back to your point, those type of mistakes are magnified and intensified because of an outside group like ABM. I would also say this goes back to what we talked about earlier, some of that messaging from the endorsement coming back to bite you in the butt. You know, if you go into the endorsement as a Republican candidate with those delegates that currently make up that body and are not 100% for banning abortion, I would doubt that you would be successful coming out of that endorsement process. I would agree with you. Um, So he had to be that way to get through that process. And then come the general, realize that, you know, that audio was played over and over and over on our TVs. Yeah. But there were, I think that Jensen took it to an extreme. I mean, there were a number, there were a number of candidates running for governor who I think had endorsable pro-life positions. And generally in Minnesota, on the Republican side, the kind of exceptions to MCCL is rape, incest, and life of the mother. Jensen, I think, wanting to be the super conservative in the race, went really, really far on it, more than what I think was an even electable position. And so Republicans, Republicans, uh, you know, have, in Minnesota, I think has traditionally been, you know, generally it's a a pro-choice state, um, but from an electoral standpoint, we're, we're... there haven't been uh, Tim Walls is, is pro-choice. Mark Dayton was pro-choice, but to, we, we there were a number of years. It's, it's taken a long time to to have. I think what you would, what people would classify as truly pro-choice governors. Um, you know, Arnie Carlson was a Republican candidate for governor. Uh, he was you know was elected to two terms. He had a complicated relationship with with the activists on on life. Tim Plenty was a pro-life governor, and so you get to Mark Dayton. And he, you know, he was, he was pro-life. I mean, he was pro-choice. Arguably the first kind of pure pro-choice governor uh, on, that was elected to Min- in Minnesota. And that, we're only going back to 2010. So this kind of abortion shift, this discussion on abortion, particularly Jensen's messaging, I think a more reasonable candidate would have been able to uh, survive it. But he just wasn't that type of candidate. Fair enough. Um, one of the last subject areas we want to discuss about this is party organizational strength. From your perspective, Becky, Democrat versus Republican, discuss the party organizational strengths and weaknesses. You know, I might have a little experience in this. I was recently executive director of the Republican Party of Minnesota and and saw kind of some of the inner workings of of that. While I was there, we, you know, they had the influx of, of the Trump campaign kind of really coming in and building up this infrastructure that the MNGOP was able to lean on. Um, that's something that was kind of a, a blip on the radar and is not the reality of, of what happens cycle after cycle, unlike the Democrats. The Democrats have had, I think Ken Martin has now been the chair of the Democrats here in Minnesota for, for 10 years. Um, he is someone that has you know, been able to come in, put his roots down, create the platform, and build on it every, every, every year after year and have this infrastructure that has built up that is obviously extremely successful. They see what works in the years prior and are able to pivot. Where the Republicans, every two years, we have new groups coming in. We, again, have these grudges, have people that don't necessarily work together. There's the silos up left and right, and we just are recreating the wheel every two years. And, you know, clearly it's really, really uh, to the detriment of our candidates. I think Ken Martin is will go down in history as one of the best party chairs in Minnesota state history and probably in the country. From an organizational standpoint, he is able to pull together all of these moving parts and culminate on election day. I mean, let's look at the, the reality is that a number of Republicans, I think both of us included, um, believed that this that the 2022 
this past election cycle represented the best opportunity in a number of years for Republicans to win statewide. 100%. And what happened on election day? The Democrats won every constitutional office, they picked up the Senate, and they retained the Minnesota House of Representatives. So for the first time in 30 plus years, the Democrats have the governor's office and both the House and the Senate. And that takes organizational strength. Um, the Democrats are doing something. With, they are running their operations in a way. They're organizing votes, voters. They are flushing precincts. They are targeting their voters in just a fundamentally more effective way. And to think that the party chairman that on the DFL side doesn't have a significant role in that, I think that he is uh, incredibly effective in his job. I would agree with you that the fact that he's been there helps the process out. But let's be clear why he's there. He's there because he keeps winning. Right. There's no reason to throw him out. And I think that what the Republicans have not done is elect a chair that truly models what the DFL is doing. Again, it's not rocket science, it's political science. And what the DFL is doing in organizing these campaigns and running them and, and facilitating things are something that the Republicans should be modeling more. Uh, Ken Martin is an activist chair in the terms, he's a strategist chair. He is someone who has worked on campaigns he understands the mechanics, the machinery, and the operations of the campaigns. Republicans generally elect party chairs uh, that are you know, well-known in the donor community. They don't have necessarily that operational understanding of campaigns. And I think the fact that the DFL party has a chair for the number of cycles that they've had who understands the mechanics, the simple blocking and tackling of a campaign, I think is, is one of, if not the greatest benefit that they have going into each election day. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hate to agree with you so much this episode, but I, I completely agree. I mean, I think that we have, again, we have kind of these, these siloed groups. We have candidates going out and not um, being in the same neighborhood and not door knocking together. We have, you know, IDs not being shared with each other. We also have, I think, maybe, um, maybe this isn't going to be popular amongst a lot of Republicans. Greater Minnesota is obviously a big key to Republican successes in this state. We need them. We have them. We now, I think, really failed in, in the suburban model. I mean, I think that that's where we've, you know, since maybe 2016, 2018, have seen a lot of the suburban areas move away. Um, I think it was a big failure, especially with, you know, public safety being a top issue this cycle um, of a lot that we weren't able to capitalize on some of these. I mean, you know, maybe a little biased here, but suburban moms. Well, this has been a great discussion this week. What we're going to try to do for next week is we're going to have on, um, uh, you know, someone who I consider to be uh, certainly knowledge and experience in the party apparatus and operations, who's going to come on and let us kind of extend this conversation because this is an ongoing discussion that Republicans are having right now. Um, Republicans are organizing right now, deciding their party leadership. And so we're going to continue some of that discussion next week. Before we go... Tweets of the week and other type of messaging. Um, I had this week a, a very interesting call out. Uh, this was meant, I think, as a criticism, but I take it as a compliment. The, the treasurer of the Republican Party of Minnesota said that I helped put the fun in dysfunction. And he was referring to, you might not know this, Becky, but I endorsed Governor Tim Walls when he well ran aware. for re-election. And he was being critical of my endorsement of Governor Tim Walls. And he said that, that I put the fun in dysfunction just because of my dis endorsement of Governor You're Tim Walls. You're a fun guy. Did you know that I endorsed Governor Tim Walls? I, am, I, I think we've discussed it. Yes, we have. 
Um, my tweet of the week is from Representative John Kosnick, um, responding to uh, our tweet of our last week's episode. He was wondering, but listeners want to know, does Todd Walker cut off the show's namesake again when answers get too long? I'm sorry, but that's just just funny. Good show and analysis so far. So, Todd Walker, hope you're listening. You got a little shout out. Have a fan out there. Um, I, I hope I did an okay job keeping Michael accountable, but I'll have to work on my calling him out when his answers get too long and boring. And I think from a time perspective, this might be our longest show. So, yeah, I, I think I think Representative Kosnick was right. So, I want to thank everyone for listening. We hope to have Todd back next week. He's traveling. He's a fancy pants. He's a busybody. But we hope to have him next week on another edition of the Broadcore Report. Thank you so much for listening.